Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast. Or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Radio Havana, Cuba, NHK Japan, France 24, and Afshin Rotansi's Going Underground. We will begin with Radio Havana, Cuba. The Vatican has formally repudiated the 15th century doctrine of discovery, or manifest destiny, which was used to justify the genocide of indigenous people and conquest of their lands. The Goldman Environmental Prize was presented to an indigenous activist in Brazil, Alejandra Corrup Munduruku, Radio Havana, Cuba. In an historic shift long sought by indigenous-led activists, the Holy See formally has repudiated the doctrine of discovery a legal theory born from a series of 15th-century papal decrees used by colonizers, including the United States, to justify the genocidal conquest of non-Christian peoples and their lands. In a joint statement, the Vatican's Departments of Culture and Education declared that, quote, the Church acknowledges that these papal bulls did not adequately reflect equal dignity and the rights of indigenous peoples, and therefore repudiates these concepts that fail to recognize the inherent human rights of indigenous peoples, including what has become known as the legal and political doctrine of discovery. The Church is also aware that the contents of these documents were manipulated for political purposes by competing colonial powers to justify immoral acts against indigenous peoples that were carried out at times without opposition from ecclesiastical authorities. The statement added, it is only just to recognize these errors, acknowledge the effects of the assimilation policies and the pain experienced by indigenous peoples and ask for pardon. Indigenous leaders who for decades demanded the Vatican rescind the discovery doctrine welcomed the move, while expressing hope that it brings real change. Quote, On the surface it looks good, it sounds good, but there has to be a fundamental change in attitudes, behavior, laws, and the policies from that statement. Ernie Daniels, the former chief of Long Plain First Nation in Manitoba, Canada. Quote, There's still a mentality out there. They want to assimilate, decimate, terminate, eradicate indigenous peoples, added Daniels, who was part of a delegation that met with Pope Francis last year in Rome and in Canada. 
Nullified by the Vatican in the 16th century, the papal decrees nevertheless underpinned centuries of colonial conquest by Europeans and Euro-Americans. In a recent interview on Indian Country Today's news class, Arizona State University law professor Robert Miller, who is Eastern Shawnee, said that, quote, what the church did is an important worldwide educational moment, but it doesn't change the law in any country. It doesn't change titles to land anywhere. It's going to take far more than just the Pope repudiating these 600-year-old papal bulls to make real changes for indigenous people. When Alessandra Korap was born in the mid-1980s, her indigenous village nestled in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil was a haven of seclusion. But as she grew up, the nearby city of Itaituba crept closer and closer with its bustling streets and commercial activity. It was not not just her village feeling the encroachment of non-indigenous outsiders. Two major federal highways paved the way for tens of thousands of settlers, illegal gold miners and loggers into the region's vast indigenous territories which cover a forested area roughly the size of Belgium. The influx posed a grave threat to Korop's Munduruku people, a 14,000-strong and spread throughout the Tapajos River Basin in Brazil's Pará and Mato Grosso states. Soon, illegal mining, hydroelectric dams, a major railway and river ports for soybean export choked their lands, lands they were still struggling to have recognized. Korop and other Munduruku women took up the possibility of defending their people, overturning the traditional all-male leadership. Organizing in their communities, they orchestrated demonstrations and presented evidence of environmental crime to Brazil's Attorney General and Federal Police. And they opposed illicit agreements and incentives offered by the Munduruku by two miners, loggers, corporations and politicians seeking access to their land. Korop's defense of her ancestral territory was recognized with the Goldman Environmental Prize on Monday. The award honors grassroots activists around the world who are dedicated to protecting the environment and promoting sustainability. Now Brazil's new government has created the country's first Ministry of Indigenous Peoples and more recently mounted operations to drive out the miners. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there are no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. The operator of the devastated Fukushima nuclear power plant says that the melted fuel debris has likely created holes in the pressure vessel of the reactor. U.S. President Biden and South Korean President Yoon Suyol announced an agreement on the deployment of nuclear submarines and possible use of nuclear weapons against North Korea. NHK Japan The operator of the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant says the melted fuel debris has likely created holes in the pressure vessel of its number one reactor. The 2011 earthquake and tsunami caused three of the plant's reactors to melt down. 
The containment vessels are filled with water to cool fuel debris made up of materials that include molten nuclear fuel. Tokyo Electric Power Company reported their findings to the Nuclear Regulation Authority on Monday. TEPCO officials say a video taken by a robot shows that a device in the bottom of the pressure vessel is missing. And where the bottom should be, it looks like there's a dark space. They also say cooling water in the pressure vessel is cascading down toward the bottom of the containment vessel. U.S. President Joe Biden and his South Korean counterpart have announced a new agreement regarding nuclear weapons. It will give Seoul a role in planning for the use of those arms in any conflict with the North. Our mutual defense treaty is ironclad, and that includes our commitment to extended deterrence, and, uh, and uh, that includes the nuclear threat and the nuclear deterrent. They're particularly important in the face of DPRK's increased threats. Our two countries have agreed to immediate bilateral consultations in the event of a nuclear attack by North Korea and promised to respond swiftly, overwhelmingly and decisively using the full force of the alliance, including the United States nuclear weapons. Yoon Son-yeol's state visit is to mark the 70th anniversary of the alliance between the two countries. In their meeting, Biden said the two countries are doubling down on cooperation as North Korea ramps up its challenges. The two leaders released the Washington Declaration, setting out how they will respond to unpredictable events. It's written with the North in mind as the country escalates its nuclear and missile development programs. It indicates that the U.S. nuclear submarine fleet will be allowed to use South Korean ports. The statement is aimed at making America's deterrence capabilities more visible so as to maintain peace and stability on the Korean peninsula. Biden says the alliance is a linchpin of regional security. My colleague Catherine Kobayashi spoke with NHK World's Kang Na-yong about what the leaders were hoping to achieve. President Yoon came to Washington to get just this type of assurance. South Koreans are obviously concerned about the threats from the North. They've wondered whether their American allies would really protect them. Some polls suggest the majority support the return of nuclear weapons to their country. And President Yoon himself mused earlier this year about the possibility. This agreement provides Yoon with the promise of extended deterrence. The U.S. would respond to any strikes from the North with retaliatory strikes. But the leaders were clear that they have no visions of returning U.S. nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula. President Biden said their partnership is ready to take on any challenges. What else do they need to work through? President Biden has grown used to updating his allies on their efforts to help Ukrainians. South Koreans have been reluctant to wade into the conflict. But President Yoon suggested last week it would be difficult to insist only on humanitarian or financial support if there's a situation in the international community cannot condone. He and Biden agreed to support Ukraine through the political, security, humanitarian and economic assistance. 
President Biden also welcomed steps President Yoon has taken towards improving relations with Japan. And we've come to expect in such meetings the leaders discussed a range of trade initiatives. Yoon has taken to calling himself South Korea's number one salesman, and he secured billions in investments to back up the image. U.S. and Philippine forces conducted their first joint live fire drill close to parts of the South China Sea, where China has territorial claims. It was part of the largest ever exercise between the two countries, taking place this month and involving over 17,000 troops. The two militaries responded to a simulated attack from the sea on Wednesday off the northern island of Luzon. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most sites. On to France 24. The latest report from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute shows global military spending continues to rise at an all-time high. The British government is facing a court challenge to its plan to fly refugees to Rwanda. France 24. A world preparing for war. The latest report from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute shows global military expenditure rose by 3.7% in 2022 to hit nearly two and a quarter trillion dollars, an all-time high. We are living in an increasingly insecure world. States are bolstering military strength in response to a deteriorating security environment, which they do not foresee improving in the near future. The U.S. remains the world's top military spender. It's $877 billion, making up 39% of the world's total. China, a distant second, at $292 billion. The increased defense spending, driven in large part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine's military spending increased by 640 percent in 2022 to account for some 34 percent of GDP, not including a massive influx of military aid from the West. The war, meanwhile, has forced a major re-evaluation of Europe's defense preparedness. Western and Central European defense budgets shot up by 13 percent last year to hit $345 billion, the fastest increase in three decades. Nordic and Baltic states accounting for some of the sharpest increases, with Finland spending up 36%. Germany, meanwhile, has reversed decades of underfunding its military to rise to number seven on the list of defense budgets. Also driving armament, though, tensions in East Asia, including China's increasingly aggressive posture towards the South China Sea and Taiwan. 2022 saw Japan's defense spending hit its highest level since 1960 as the country responds to perceived threats from China, North Korea and Russia. Lawyers representing asylum seekers told the London Court of Appeal on Monday that Rwanda was not a safe country and said that the UK is falling to abide to its human rights obligation. The British Conservative government wants to send thousands of refugees to Kigali as quickly as possible. 
facing. The judges, its lawyers, said that the agreement will be subject to rigorous checks on the ground and therefore rejects the, the accusations of human rights violations. Yet this Monday morning, before the hearing, more than 800 British health professionals signed a letter saying that the migrant deal could cause catastrophic physical and psychological harm to those who do not want to travel to the land of a thousand hills. The Court of Appeals decision is due this Thursday. If the refugees lose the case, the option of an appeal to the Supreme Court will remain and could further delay the departure of a first flight to Rwanda. Kigali says it is now ready to receive asylum seekers and continues to build hundreds of homes to accommodate them. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162. Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. Many, many thanks to everyone who has contributed. We will conclude with Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground. Afshin again interviewed legendary journalist Seymour Hirsch. This time, the topics include the Ukrainian government's embezzlement of $400 million and selling of donated weapons on the black market. Also, Ukraine is buying all of its diesel for the military from Russia. Meanwhile, the U.S. and European press fails to follow Hirsch's revelations about the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, instead writing counter-stories supplied by the intelligence community. Going Underground few weeks ago, we spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch about his bombshell report that the United States blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, destabilizing Europe's energy supplies and causing what may have been the single biggest methane emission event ever recorded, an environmental catastrophe. And now Hirsch, the legendary journalist known for exposing cover-ups like the U.S. Army's massacre at Milai and torture of prisoners in Abu Ghraib, joins me again from Washington, D.C. with more revelations, this time reporting that the CIA was well aware that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his entourage had embezzled hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid. The budget right now, the actual money I think the, the, my government has spent on that war is, uh, well, about five months ago, it was about $113 billion, and it's now up to 120. So the $400 million figure, when you compare it to the, the great gross amount of money we spent there, is almost trivial. But... Ukraine needs a lot of diesel fuel to keep its army going, to keep its trucks going. And they use diesel, and it's and they have since the war began. They've been buying diesel from Russia. <laughs> they weren't supposed to, right? Well, Zelensky's you know, not supposed to be funding the war on Zelensky. The four hundred million was just to figure the estimate that I had been told by people I've known for decades was the skim on just the oil money, let alone it's sort of disturbing that Ukraine's buying oil from Russia with whom at war. I mean, but we, you know, oil and money transcends every bit of rationality, I guess. But then to discover the 400 million isn't, isn't all. RCA Director Burns, Bill Burns, who's really a diplomat, he's never been in the CIA, he's had a great career as ambassador to some places, including Russia. 
when he finished his tour as ambassador to Russia, he wrote a memoir in which he warned against expanding NATO to the east because it'll lead the war. He was the middleman when the um, CIA and other agencies ran a covert operation to destroy the pipeline. Well, he comes fact, off better, in fairness, in the in this piece about uh, alleged corruption of the Zelensky uh, administration in Kiev, because you say that uh, your sources are telling you he has had words with Zelensky, and I should say, Zelensky denies all corruption. He was named in the Panama Papers. But according to you, you're saying that Zelensky um, uh, was told off by Bill Burns about all his Zelensky's officials riding around in Kiev in new Mercedes-Benzes and the like. The actual message to Zelensky was that the bureaucrats and the generals are getting very angry at you because you're taking too much of the, of the scam. You know, you're taking a bigger cut. <laughs> and he was given a list of 35 people that were involved in uh, corrupt activities. Zelensky did fire 10 people on the list, some generals and officers and some civilian bureaucrats. Most of the agencies in the government Normally, you, you do a contract with somebody supplying toilet paper. You'll contract the paper company. Everybody's gone to brokers. Everybody's now getting third parties involved because that increases the chance for money on the side. And the corruption there is just beyond belief. It always has been. And that doesn't change. And so that's all I was writing about. But, you know, uh, like a lot of the stuff I write about, you know, they keep on saying unnamed sources as if. You know, in all those years, I was at the New York Times winning a lot of prizes for my work then, you know, back in the 70s and Watergate and stuff like that, and Vietnam. How could you possibly name sources? You'd put, put people in jail. But you know that. Why be shocked? It's, Ukraine's always been at the bottom of the list or the top of the list in terms of corruption. Yeah, I, I think you know? everyone's shocked in the uh, mainstream media community because uh, the, Zelensky is a hero. And it was bipartisan in, bipartisan in Congress to send so many billions of uh, dollars worth of public money when, uh, when your inner cities are, are, are crumbling, clearly. So what you're saying is Zelensky is fueling the war on Ukraine by buying Russian oil on the black market. Uh, I understand that uh, exports of arms from Ukraine... Are, uh, are gaining uh, traction here. Poland, Romania, other countries on the border uh, were being flooded with weapons we were shipping uh, for the war uh, to Ukraine. In other words, it was colonels and others who were given a shipment of some weapons would personally resell them or retail them back into the, black, the dark market, included these handheld missiles that could shoot down an airplane, you know, at, at, at a considerable height. At one time, about six months ago, maybe more, CBS wrote a story about it that they were forced to retract. They published CS uh, television, put on the air a show about the arms. Forced market. to retract because of mistakes? They were just, you know, everybody's, we're on the side of Ukraine. We all hate Russia. Biden hates Russia and, and he hates China. And uh, Tony uh, uh, Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan the National Security Advisor and Victoria Newland, they're all unified in their public distaste and, and contempt for Russia, all things Russian, and the same for China. I just don't understand where this uh, immense outpouring of hate comes. Um, yes, Putin did a terrible thing uh, by starting a war, and that's going to be on him forever. You know, he actually started one when he didn't have to. 
He's not convinced me he did not have to. I think you could have negotiated something. As I say, you can't excuse what Russia did. They started the first, the bloodiest war in in in, in Western Europe since World War II. You know, I you don't know. Call, Yugos- you Yugoslavia to- was was pretty bad. Your paper, the New York Times, was talking about how to how they helped the FBI to apprehend Jack Texera, Texera, this twenty one year old National Guardsman. Don't get me going on the press. There's, there's a no. The press is a no win situation for me. Look, I worked for years at the uh, New York Times. As I'm sure everybody at the paper knows, and won a lot of prizes. And one of the most important stories I wrote about the CIA spying on American citizens had nobody named in it. I'm certainly an outsider now. I'm publishing on a on a Substack, which is a uh, I'm self-publishing in essence. Trump terrified the press that he won after all the mocking they did, and they're terrified again. And I, I will tell you, there's a lot of people very worried that we might end up with a Biden-Trump um, uh, uh, ticket in 2024. The Times' response to, to Trump and uh, all, the, all the horrors, the January 6th uh, invasion of the Capitol, has there been, I think, to make a very distinct commitment to being pro-Biden. There's very little criticism of Biden. None of the stories I've written about Biden, look, I know much more than I've said about what, how that mission took place. It was based in Norway, what we were doing. Uh, and so none of them have followed the story in any way, except the right counter stories given by the intelligence community. It does wash two ways. Uh, you know, you cannot be shocked that the Times would be as good citizen turning to the FBI. To, the sources you want are people that are motivated. And ever since I did the My Lai Massacre story, which made a lot of people in the military who suffered through Vietnam, um, and the horrors there and kept their mouth shut because they wanted to get that next star or that next promotion. And they knew talking about it. So I was an expiator for them. And so the people that I talked to take the oath of office. They have to take it every year in the military. Anyway, I think in State Department, too. They don't take it to their boss or the colonel or the general or to the president. They take it to the Constitution. And those are the people I have. I know. And over many, many more than you might think who I talk to, because when they see something wrong, even though their job may be online, if I if I screw up and somehow do get them nailed in the story, right? But they talk to me. And the Times, you know, I don't think when I worked there, they had those kind of sources. I mean, I, I know that because they relied on me for certain things. I don't know what's going to happen with the pipeline story. I don't know if it's ever going to come out because this government will never investigate it, uh, at least in an honest way. Because well, the UN, the UN won't either, despite uh, Russia and China and, and Brazil wanting uh, to. We don't have time to, to look at the latest piece, which is, a, which is Guantanamo. The Constitution of the United States is very clear on something called due process. And if you're in a jail in America, you don't have to be a citizen to get due process. And you don't have to have been captured somewhere outside of America or American sovereign territory. Due process is in the Constitution. And none of the courts that have adjudicated the very, it's been legal issues galore. And the courts have done something since forcing, back in the Bush-Cheney days of forcing the White House, at least the, the government, to give some rights to them. No court has ever said the prisoners have absolute right to due process. The way the court, there was a case decided a couple of weeks ago that sort of blew my mind. It was some guy who was released you know, he'd been in for 22, 20 years, 
going to the torture prisons that we had back in the early days, got to Guantanamo, no evidence at all convicting him, linking him to anything. Finally, two years ago, he was released. He was said, you're free to go. You have to go to a safe country. Well, he was from Yemen and he wanted to go back there. And so the establishment said, it's not safe. So you can't go there. Sayesh, thank you. That excerpted interview with Seymour Hirsch was by Afshin Ratansi from his weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with John Pilger, Noam Chomsky, Vandana Shiva, and many others. Search for Going Underground TV on Rumble.com. I'm still recovering from spinal surgery six weeks ago, and I truly appreciate your well wishes. Hopefully, my energy is increasing soon. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link. And get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. This shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.